with your hosts, John Jowski, Pat Powers, Chris Cowan, and Greg Wolf. This is the X Step Podcast. Well, so I, live in, so I live in like a no streetlight, small ass town in New Hampshire. <laughs> so it's incredible that our one store, which happens to also be a gas station convenience store, you know, restaurant, has church, really beer selection. everything has the best beer selection in like a 20 mile radius. Like no joke. It's I don't know why. But Have you tried good. any of the other ones? So I've tried. Have you I'm, tried any of the other Das Yummies? Um, not yet. The key, so, the key lime pie or the strawberry pie? Nope. The, or the is, lemon meringue pie? Nope. But it sounds delicious. And from from my wow, experience, there's a million of them. From my experience thus far, their like flavor profile is like spot on. Raspberry right, cheesecake. So I'm gonna read like through this. Cheesecake. This peach cobbler, let, dude. I'm, let me let me read. I'm through sipping these. on it and I'm like, oh my god, am I drinking a dessert? <laughs> Kinda. Let me read through these. There's so many. Yeah, it's really There's good. There's a key lime pie one, which I'm definitely down to try that. Peach cobbler, strawberry pie, lemon meringue pie, ginger snap pear, uh, gingerbread apricot crumble, banana cream pie, blackberry almond tart, millionaire pie, raspberry cheesecake, blueberry lemon crumble, pineapple cream pie, cranberry cherry cobbler, Peach and blackberry, coconut cream pie. I cannot believe that there's that many of them. That's insane. Right? Do you want to take a guess as to which one is the highest rated on Untapped? No idea. I've had the two. I don't know the which one, one you're is. drinking. The peach cobbler. The peach cobbler. It's good. Is the highest it's, rated. It's really and then good. The next highest rated is the blackberry almond tart. Blackberry almond tart. That sounds pretty good too. I'm telling you, it just see, the it tastes ball? like what the dessert tastes like. Both instances the, I believe of the it. two I've had. It's incredible. It's called Oozle Finch Craft Brewery from Fort Monroe, Virginia. Oozle Finch. Yeah. I don't know. Is that a bird? Wow. Let's see. What is an oozle? A lot has changed for us in the last few months to include our breweries and ownerships and our name. Please utilize the oozle finch beers and blend. Oh, I'm on the wrong page. Let's go back. Okay, okay, okay. There we go. There we go. We believe beer should be complex and uncomplicated, familiar yet surprising, with a nod to tradition while blazing new trails. Made for people who appreciate the nuances of grains and hops, and for those who are simply looking for a great beverage. That's why Oozlefinch, you'll constantly see new offerings. Classic styles reimagined with new ingredients and techniques. Experimental and hybrid styles designed to challenge and please your palate. Beer is made for sharing, and we're in a constant pursuit of new flavors to share with you. We want you to fall in love with a beer, and then when it runs out, fall in love with the next one. That's the relationship we have with brewing. And it's the kind of experience we want you to have with the beer. That kind of experience that brings people together time and time again. We hope you'll take a look around and get to know us a little bit better. Visit us at the historic Fort Monroe. 
Cheers. Seems like a pretty cool place. They just earned themselves a follow on Instagram. Hell yeah. I was just hmm. researching what an ouzelfinch is, and apparently it's not a real bird. It's a I didn't it's a made-up featherless bird that flies backwards at supersonic speeds and carries weapons of the air defense and coast artillery. It's like a mascot of the air defense artillery, and its origin is from Fort Monroe, Virginia, and I guess it was just like sort of a hallucination of someone who had too much to drink and it so just it's, it's snowballed from there this place is this place is on the chesapeake bay that's super cool and it is it looks like it's about we had talked about potentially doing like a bedford or lynchburg uh a lynchburg uh virginia trip to go play some of the paul Macbeth courses that is it looks like probably close to Maybe two hours away from there. Let's see. Yeah, I'm. I would like to go to Virginia at some point, like I just said. It. it no, I'm sorry. It's almost four hours away. It's three hours mm. and forty minutes. So. Well, what needs to happen is Paul McBeth needs to make a second course in Virginia. It's like I don't know what his foundation is doing in South America. No, I'm just kidding. Mm-hmm. They're doing really good work, but. It'd be great mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to see really like top tier courses just happen to be next to this brewery, so it's not inconvenient to go. <laughs> I mean, let's just have Paul Macbeth retire and just start making courses everywhere. Um, I mean, after I think this is the first time that we've been able to talk about the circumstances of the world championship, and I don't it know, it definitely is. I don't know. Do you retire after Definitely that, or is, does it was... is it build that no. thirst? No, no. The dude's on a guaranteed ten mil ten year contract. Yeah, that's for he's sure. He's priced in for another ten minimum, minimum, and then he's going to go make bank in the Masters division. Because by that point, there will be just as much money coming into the Masters. That's my prediction. You think so? How old is he right now? Like thirty? I do think so. I think they're on a. Tra- He's he's thirty. Thirty. So ten years, and the, mm-hmm. the money is going to be equivalent. Where do you think the money is mm-hmm. going to be in the, the NPO? Because I'm assuming that the NPO is still going to have the well astronomically higher. That would be for the contracts, not just the prize money. The prize money would have to be the same between the NPO. And I think it'll FPO. be both. I think yeah. I think both will be. I think both will increase, and I think both will end up. What it's going to take, I think there's a couple of things. First thing is the next couple of contract renewals. Like So Paul McBeth kind of set the bar. So when these players go to get a restructured deal, they're going to say, well, Paul got this. Granted, he's a six-time world champ. Well, I have X amount of world championships or this amount of majors, so this is what I'm worth. And I think you're going to see agents start to come in on some of these contract negotiations. You're going to see the contracts go up. As the contracts go up, the outside sponsors are going to go up. And as the outside sponsors go up and as the salaries go up, you're going to see prize money just keep going up and up and up. And I do think that the Pro Tour will eventually be the be-all, end-all for professional disc golf. Like, I think if they're going to kind of phase a lot of what the PDG, the PDGA, I think, will always be the governing body. But I think they're going to assume more of like a um, 
the USGA in golf or like from other sports like USA wrestling, USA lacrosse. They're going to assume more of a, a rules committee as opposed to, you know, having the hand in the professional side of things. That's going to be more left to the private side. And I think as that happens, you're going to see more and more um, money coming in, which I'm excited for. Because, I mean, if you look at Paul Macbeth, I mean, he is he's one of the only the, the only players that I know of that has had all of these outside sponsors. Like he's got Celsius right now. He's had Adidas in the past. Um, I don't know if he has Adidas or Oakley now, um, but I know he has had sponsorships with clothing companies in the past. You know, so there's all these outside people that if he is able to bring those in and more people are able to bring them in, I think you're going to see a huge uptick in salaries for players. And another point to that is I saw an article today. I don't remember if it, it might have been on Ulti World. It was either Ulti World or Udisc. I can't remember. Um, but they were talking about the huge uptick in 970 plus rated juniors at the Junior World Championships this year. And what people are, you know, they were they were talking about how that's a crazy rating to have there. But I think if you look at that, you're going to see these youth that are like, oh, Paul can do it. And they got into it due to quarantine or because their parents got into it and this huge influx. And you're going to see more kids at a younger age taking things more seriously. And they're going to see as those kids become 1,000 rated, you're going to see these tournaments where there's nobody that's under 1,000 rated playing in these big tournaments. Once that happens, I think you're going to really see the competition push and grow. And it's, things are going to be exponential in the next five years. And then in 10 years, I think it's going to be even crazier. So. Yeah, it's going to be wild. We'll see. I I mean, I think um, all these kids that are just building that muscle memory, Mm -hmm. uh, like just millions of shots over their lifetime career is at a huge advantage, which good for them. And I'm Oh, 100%. I mean, if you look at any other sport, that's how that's the model for any other sport. You know, if you really want to get like not good, but if you want to get great at another sport, you have to dedicate time since you were a little kid. You know, like if you look at some of these lacrosse players, I mean, some of the Native American lacrosse players—they come, they literally, as soon as they start walking, they're walking around with a lacrosse stick in their hand, boys and girls, you know. And from that's that's how you get like the Thompson brothers, who are prolific lacrosse players, you know. Or you get, you know, some of these kids who've been throwing a baseball since they literally could walk, you know. You get that's that's how you get these teenage phenoms that just go out and and do phenomenal things. In yeah, the pro scene at other sports. What's the story I don't behind think that model's Paul gonna be any different? What's the story behind Paul Macbeth though? Well, Paul Macbeth I think is kind of the last of that line. Um Paul Macbeth started young. He started when he was in high school, so he was still young, but he gave up baseball, started playing, and then I mean he's only thirty. I mean he's been dominant for the last ten years. And at twenty years old, I mean you're barely you know, an adult at that point. So, I mean, he started when he was a teenager. So go, he John, started we just when lost he was young. Like half our but I mean, we're not talking about a comment. kid who's what's that? We just lost half our viewership with that one comment. They're yeah, offended. What, comment? what did I say? Oh, 20 year olds are just what? barely an adult. They are. They can barely. Think I'm not disagreeing. At that point. I'm not disagreeing with you. If you're just marginalizing a majority you, of our do viewership. Remember, do you remember when you were 20? I remember when I was 20. Let's just not talk. I was about that. barely a human being when I was twenty. <laughs> <laughs> I was just a sack of like Bud Light and like I have no idea. 
<laughs> it was pretty much it. I was infused with Bud Light 24-7. Yeah. His, Anyways. Uh, <laughs> ah, definitely. But, I mean, he, he wasn't, like, an adolescent when he started. He wasn't, like, a little teeny tiny kid. Like, some of these kids that are coming up are going to be phenomenal. But um, I do think that he's the last of that breed. Like, I mean, even Eagle. Eagle started playing when he was very young. Yeah, you know, he was he, like I think eight Eagle or nine. When he was, I think he said nine. Yeah. So it, you, I mean, have you seen that documentary, by the way? It's great. I did. It was fantastic. I watched it on Father's Day. Oh, oh, that's very touching. For those yeah. of you who do not know what good. we're talking about, you should go on Jomez Pro at the YouTube channel and watch Eagle's Trail. It's a documentary about one of the most prolific pros out there currently. It's well done. It's great. I think it's he's the current and world number one, isn't he? Um, I think Eagle's I guess the current it de- world I guess number it one. De- Depends if you uh, weigh the outcomes of the world championship. Well, I mean, yes, but I mean, oh, it's an overall. You know, it's not obviously the world's weighs into it, but I do still think he's the number one player in the world right now. I mean, Ricky was at one point this season. I think Mm -hmm. Paul Mm -hmm. will be at one point this season, but I think Eagle currently is. I mean, he just he. I mean, it's it's hard to remember this too because Eagle's been around for so long, but he's only twenty two. Oh, I mean, yeah. We were just talking about yeah, how twenty crazy. year olds are barely people. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. he's twenty two years old, so he's still got plenty of time. I mean, Paul was like what? I mean, I guess would have been like a year or two younger than him when he won his first world championship. So Eagle's still got plenty of time, and I, I do think he'll put all that together. At some point, I think Heimberg is young too. I think he's older than Eagle, but he's he's very young too, you know. But all those guys, they're all super young, and it's easy to overlook that. You so know, are because, we at a stage where something I did see pointed out at the World Championship? But go, go ahead. At the I saw a, I think it might have been Ulti World. I think they might have been talking about it on the Upshot podcast. But they were talking about how at the World Championships, if you look at the top four or five players who finished top four or five, they're all older players. Like, they're all what would be considered older players. And you have James Conrad, who's in his 30s. You have Paul McBeth, who's in his 30s. You have Nate Sexton, who's in his 30s. And who else finished tied for third? There's another, I don't remember who tied with Sexton. Somebody else tied with Sexton, but it was, I don't remember. Um... But they were all in their 30s. Kevin Jones? And that's interesting. You know, we'll say maybe? No, I think he finished fifth. Okay. I think there was somebody else tied for third, and I can't remember who it was. Was it Kale LaVisca? I don't know. No, 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 no. I don't think it was Kale. I I don't know. Regardless. Whatever. Yeah. But, no, it was because the – so this was also a thing. The top four – was it Dickerson? Yeah, I think – it might have been Dick. I think it was Chris Dickerson was the other one because they said the top four players also were all USDGC champions, which is interesting. That's wild. Top four players at the world championships this year were all US champions. I mean, I don't know if we should talk about the results yet. Like, is it still within the sphere of spoilers? No, no, no. no. Okay. For the worlds? Okay. No. All right. No, because right. we have. They just they just had a silver series this past weekend, and this upcoming weekend there's going to be another DGPT event 
So I think we're well past. Okay, cool. I mean, it was number one on SportsCenter. I yeah. Mean, um, it, it's, it's so kinda, it's 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 been around. If you don't know, if you don't know now, <laughs> sorry. Going to inject this here. If we talk about the world championship, you should just skip this episode because we're going to probably be alluding to it at the very least. And if you don't want spoilers, you should watch it. So we can pause here, go watch it, and come on back. All right, welcome back. Um, so can we talk about the world championship? Like, do you want to talk about it? Let's get in the thick of it because there's so I mean, much you want to, I, I want to talk about you it. You want to get into the whole thing. I want to talk sure, about it. Like, let's get into it. Like, I, take okay. it away. So <clears throat> what does that mean? I just want to like talk about how great the round oh, two was. I thought you wanted to get into Nate Sexton, like exploding. I'm sorry. I thought you wanted to get into the negativity surrounding the event. Oh, well, I mean, we can talk about that because that's definitely something that let's I think do no, let's do the, dude, let's well, do the positive. All right. Let's, it, the negativity has been done. It's been done. Well, okay. We all should, right. we Regardless. should address it, but let's, I think so. let's talk about the positivity first. Um, let's keep it good. well, round two, Nate Sexton at the fort. That was one of the best rounds I think of the tournament to watch. Masterful. It Masterful, was beautiful. Sure. Like don't watch mm -hmm. just the last round, watch them all. I have to say, I think. Every round at the fort was just a better viewing experience than Mulligan's. I agree with you. Um, maybe it's just something about like the character of the course. I think really the fort stood out more so than the Mulligan's did. I agree. Um, and that could just yes, be by design. I, I think I agree with a you designed there. disc golf course is not a repurposed golf course. What are your thoughts on the two courses? Like, if you had to grade both courses, what would you give them as world championship caliber disc golf courses? Um, I would take the mulligans out of it. I would, I don't know what else would be in the proximity, but I knew what they were going for. They were going for sort of a split. They're going for like, an, uh, yes. an open, um, like basically a golf course, disc golf versus woods. That's exactly disc golf. what it is. And I don't but know. I just think they it have, is, it's not like the OTB open course, you know, the OTB open course and the Portland open course. Those were monster golf courses. They were long. Which is what I would have preferred. Scorable. Really? You would have preferred the shorter course. No, 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 no. Sorry. I would have preferred like the Portland Open course, that long type of course. Yes. In addition to the fort. I like exactly like a GMC. The thing that I think Fox Run has going for it that other op wide open courses like that don't have is that that property, it was an open property that was specifically designed for disc golf. And I think instead of trying to shoe in or pigeonhole, you know, a, a disc golf course onto a golf course, I would prefer to see things like that, like mm -hmm. wide open private resorts or yep. things like that putting in, or ski resorts even, yep. putting in, you know, disc golf courses. Things that you can create it to be a disc golf course, not a repurposed golf course. Cause I think there's a lot of inherently complicated about mixing the two things. And I think I, my favorite event bar none on the tour is, is the green mountain championships. Brewster Ridge and Fox run are my two favorite courses on tour. And I love those. And I think the juxtaposition of the wooded course with the open course is exactly what you should have at every world championship. I don't think it should be too open or too wooded courses. I do think it should be a mixture of both. 
but it's got to be the right courses. I would rather see two wooded courses over what we saw at this World Championships because I think Mulligans was not not adequate. And I have liked like I, the Utah Open, the one where Ricky hit the the walk off ace a couple years ago. I've watched that video a bunch of times because I I I genuinely do like that course. But as a World Championship course, I just don't think it offers I enough. Agree. I agree. You know, even kind of like. You know, look at what the Ledgestone offers. You know, you have Northwoods Gold, but you also have the Eureka Lake course, which is open. That's a wide open property that was granted that I'm not making it sound like that course is without its own issues, because I do think that the Lake Eureka course does have some issues. Um, But I think that that's a better course for a world championship than like what you see at Mulligan's. You know, Mulligans, for a course for us to play, I think it would be fantastic. I would love to play that course. But as a world championship course, I just don't think it offered the challenge for those guys. Now, the Fort, on the other hand, like you were saying, I do think that that course had so much character. And it had, I think it was a little bit short, but it was like just barely crossing that threshold. I think as a viewing You thought it was short? I thought it was pretty short for a world's course. However, what it did offer was the chance for a lot of scoring opportunities and some must-get birdies, and it created a lot of drama going down. And I think hole 18 at, at the four, I genuinely think that might be that, – that is what I think of as the prototypical disc golf hole where you're going to put roped OB and you're going to create drama at the end of a course. I think that's perfect. I think the USDGC does a pretty good job at Winthrop Gold with that, but I do think that they go a little heavy-handed with some of that, you know, man-made OB. What I love about the fort... Are we talking about 17? Seven, right, right. Mm. But, like, even... What was that course down in... It was in Tyler, Texas, when they had the Texas State Championships. Uh, that, it's like the Dogwood or... Yes, yes, yeah. Dogwood, yes. That course, very, very similarly to the course that we just saw at the fort and even Waco, I would even put Waco in this boat. They have natural OB on the sides. Like, so the off, you're off the fairway. It doesn't need to be marked OB. You're just in the super tight woods. Mm -hmm. That's like, you almost have to take a stroke to get out, Yep. you know? And I would prefer to see that over all of the rope at Winthrop. Now, that being said, I love the USDGC and I love the Winthrop gold course. But it's a different thing. And I think for the World Championships, I would prefer to see more of that natural OB, which I think the Fort offered. But they used it tastefully. They used that that man-made OB. They used that tastefully. The roped OB was was tastefully done on 18. It was well-placed. And, it. I mean, hey, that shot was the best shot in disc golf. And it set up a super dramatic finish. It was it was fantastic. I, I couldn't have been happier with the fort. Um, yeah, I, I know a lot um, of the players. I'm glad they played three rounds there. Yes, I agree. Um, every single round that I would recommend anyone watch would be the rounds at the fort. That's it. Um, they were certainly the most interesting, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and let's, that's ignoring the controversy that yes. befell the Mulligans course, which, to my knowledge, I don't know if there's anything further to give sort of a rundown of what the controversy was, is that the, like, out-of-bounds ruling adjusted mid-tournament without obvious announcement to the players. I don't know if there's anything further to this. I learned this from a Instagram video from Eagle. So, <laughs> yeah, he was pretty salty about it. Yeah, so I can and... I can speak to that a little bit. Um, the Upshot podcast uh, from Ulti World just did an interview with, um, he's the marketing manager from the PDGA, and he said 
Yeah, it was a mistake. Nate Heinold, also, who's the TD for like the Ledgestone, and he's on the board of directors uh, for the PDGA, said that it was it was a mistake. Both of those guys said that it should have been done, but it should have been done before everything started. And they realized that they were tr- they were only trying to do the right thing, but they made a mistake. They owned up to it, and they did it at the wrong time. So hopefully that clears everything up. Hopefully those kinds of things don't happen again. Um, and I know that was what the players were asking for. They said it was the right decision, but it should have been done before the tournament. Once you have a round started and you're playing through the round and then the tournament is continuing, you shouldn't play that course again and the course shouldn't be changed, which is essentially what happened. They played one round there, they played at the fort, and then they came back to Mulligans and it was different than what they had just played on. Yeah. And that was, that's not right. I don't, I don't think that should be the case either. It was the right decision to make. They made it at the wrong time. Which I think should be held accountable. I mean, I think if yes, I agree. you made the mistake at the beginning, just own up to it and then play the tournament through with the initial like setup. I think the decision to change it midway through, like, I, I, just, I don't know. I just can't get behind that in the stage of the world championship. That's yes, I agree with you. It I think that's a too rinky. big of like, an error. That's something you do, like you see at like you know a B tier or a C tier or an A tier mm-hmm. even, like at a local event. Like that's not something you see. The World Championships, in my opinion, all majors, honestly, all majors, in my opinion, should be held to that standard. Like they're not just a disc golf tournament. Those are very, very special. You know, the European Open, the World Championships, the USDGC, those need to be prestigious, perfectly run events. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you can't have those kinds of slip-ups and those kinds of things. And I've heard, again, I want to say this came from the Ulti World podcast, um, uh, the Upshot podcast on Ulti World. Um, maybe it came from somewhere else. It might have come from listening to Nate Sexton and Jeremy Colling, too. But potentially foundation disc golf, one of them. Um, <laughs> Regardless, check any, them all out. Anyway, great. Yeah, absolutely. Check all of them out. They're great sources of information. But anyway, I think it was foundation now that I think about it. But they were talking about how it would be interesting and it would be, I think, the correct way to do it for the PDGA to have someone in charge, maybe not necessarily like the TD, but have someone in charge of the TDs for majors. Like that's their job is to make sure that the, it's like a, a, you know the director of a majors or whatever. And you're in charge of making sure that the courses are set up, like you fly out ahead of time, you make sure that they're in the proper configuration, that everything is set up properly, that you have a checklist of this, this, this needs to be done, it needs to be held to this standard. And that's their job. Because those bids go out, you know, they go out a year ahead of time. I mean, Utah, they knew that this was going to be, I think they got awarded this in 2019 or 2018 even. No, I think it was 2019 is when it was awarded. So they've known for two years that this was coming. So there's no no excuse for it to be, you know, ill-prepared. So I think that that would be interesting is for the PDGA or even, you know, if it does get turned over to the DGPT, you know, if the Pro Tour handles the majors, which I think would be a great idea to put somebody in charge of making sure, like put a course designer in charge of that. Avery Jenkins, Eric McCabe. One of the prolific course designers that's currently active and get them out there and seeing these things and making sure that they're all set up prior to the majors. You know, I, I do think that the European Open, it's a shame that we can't play that this year, that we can't watch it this year. But I love that tournament. I love the way that tournament is run. And I love the way those courses they look. You know, those courses are fantastic over there. And I love the way the Beast looks for a major. I love the way that the USDGC looks for a major and for all the flack that the USDGC and 
you know, Winthrop Gold Course get, they there's so much history steeped in that course because it's always at the same place. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think the World Championship should be at the same place, but I do think that there should be someone in charge of making sure that whatever place gets the bid is up to snuff. That you're not having, you know, some place that thinks they're ready, but they're really not. Like, you shouldn't really get two takes at that. Like, it's the World Championships. It's got to be perfect. I definitely agree. And I think if we, as in, like, the disc golf community and uh, right. as a whole, are really pushing to get, like, credibility to the sport when we're trying to, like, sell the sport to ESPN and that type of media outlet, you can't really be showing like weakness, which is like changing the rules mid tournament. Like you don't see any other professional sport doing that in the middle of a tournament. So, I mean, look at the, the NFL, right? So the Super Bowl is unlike other big events, you know, even the MLB is also the same way. So like the world series and the Super Bowl are unlike other, you know, other sports. So like tennis, the majors are always played at the same places. You know, Wimbledon is played at Wimbledon. In golf, the Masters is always played at Augusta. You know, the, you know where the majors are going to be. Now, the U.S. Open in golf does move. But, again, same as with the World Series and with the, the Super Bowl, there is someone in charge of making sure that those facilities are set up and are ready to go for those championships. The PGA is not going to let the, the U.S. Open happen at a place that's not ready to handle it. You know, the Super Bowl is not going to be held at a stadium that can't handle it. They, like, there's somebody in charge of those things. And mm-hmm. I think that that's the way, same way it should be for disc golf. Because I would like to see it catapult into the mainstream. And I think we're, we're definitely as close as we've ever been. But I think we're just about there. You know, uh, the DGPT just signed that, I think, was it a three-year deal? No, it's a three-event deal with ESPN2. So there's going to be three different events that are going to be put up on ESPN2 starting in August. Um, start. I think... Can they please show the worlds? I, I don't know if they're going to, <sighs> because that's not a DGPT event. That's so sad. Like, it was one it's of the PDG. greatest tournaments yeah. I've ever seen. It would have been great for mainstream media. I agree. I agree. The, it was yeah. such a crazy experience. It was The narrative was just wild. Was, you, you, don't, you can't write it better than that. So no. we, were, we were at... Um, for anybody who's listened to our podcast for any amount of time, um, you've heard Dan's voice on here before, and we were at Danny's bachelor party this past weekend. Um, Pat, myself, and then a couple other people, Danny and Shane, and um, we were all going through. You know, we were we were at different bars going through. You know, Pat and I were checking UDisc throughout as we got. You know, as we were going through, got to the end. We're at the last bar, and. I'm checking Twitter and I see like people are going nuts. So we flip on the pro tour on my phone, right at the bar. We're plenty deep into this party at this point. And we are like freaking out. We see the shot happen. We're, Oh my, and then it goes to the playoff. We're like, Oh man. We like, we're freaking out of the bar, jumping up and down. People are looking at us funny, but it was, it was a very, very cool experience. You know, it was that, Another thing that happened with that was, so we went to a golf simulator while we were there um, the day before. So I think it would have been day three of the Worlds or day four. It was day four. Yes. Um, And we were watching uh, the women's round 
I asked the guy at the bar because we had the whole facility rented out and he put the women's round up on the main screen, the big, the big screen TV in mm-hmm. the golf simulator while we're playing. So we're playing golf on one side of the room and on the other side of the room is this gigantic TV playing the the women's round, which was really, really cool. Yes, that's awesome. And he's like, he's like I, I didn't realize this golf had like, the, it was up like this. Like, I didn't realize. I'm like, yeah, man. <laughs> it was, that's so it was cool. Really, yeah, it was nice. It was cool. Um, the women's, let's applaud them. Like that tournament was wild. It was it great. Was, I mean, if the shot on on 18 doesn't happen for James Conrad, everybody is talking about the storyline from the FPO mm-hmm. and, and Katrina Allen's shot on 18. Like, I mean, the fact that we had on the same hole, two people essentially pull the world championship out of that one hole is is insane. And if James Conrad doesn't make the most miraculous shot in the history of the sport, Katrina Allen is right up there in that conversation with her efforts, mm-hmm. you know, to, to dig her second world championship away from Paige. I think that was, it was such good, compelling, entertaining sports that, you know, you, you don't get that a lot of times. And when you do, it's, it's important to, to relish it and cherish it and understand that those moments are, are important. And I think this is going to catapult the sport into, oh, this is capable of the same drama intentions that we love in other sports you know this is the same as you know a big moment in the world series or a big moment in the super bowl and i think you're going to see the world championships under a better light in years to come i wouldn't be surprised to see the world championships broadcast for that to be the first tournament broadcast live you know i I think that could easily happen it's interesting that you say that um i had a argument with a co-worker of mine after like i was trying to be like watch this shot oh my god um following the world championship of whether or not that was james conrad's shot on 18 was one of the most clutch of all sports i yeah so and what side of the fence do you fall on there you think that it is i think that it is so i can definitely see that argument and i've heard I heard a couple really good arguments that that propped up your side. And at, at first blush, when I think about it, I'm like, no, other sports have been around for so much longer, it's impossible for that to be the case. But if you think about it, it would be it, it was not like a, it was not a lucky shot. It was not a shot that James Conrad threw willy-nilly, oh hey, it happened to go in and this happened. I mean, there's a little bit of that. Well, there was, but there wasn't. He also, he needed to make that shot. It's not like, hey, I need to put this close to the basket and it happened to go in. Mm -hmm. He needed to make that shot. It needed to go in the basket at that very moment. Otherwise, he does not win the tournament. Now, it also set up because Kevin Jones had his blow up. If Kevin Jones doesn't blow up and he's right behind James Conrad, it does not free James Conrad up to make that shot. But because James Conner had, I think he had a two-stroke buffer at that point. If he had a one-stroke buffer, if 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 Kevin was right on his butt, I don't think he makes that play. I think he plays safe and he gets the second-place finish and Paul gets his sixth world championship. But if that doesn't happen, Kevin has his blow-up. It frees up a little bit of breathing room, and James can take that shot. You know, James can take – he he needed to make that shot. What the, I heard this equated to and where I think this helps your argument in May – make me fall on your side with this is that's like in the world series 
It's the bottom of the ninth inning. You're down by four runs. There's two outs, and you need a grand slam to tie things up to go to extra innings. And the, the, the batter at the plate hits the grand slam. Like, he knows that that is the one thing he has to do. He has to execute a, a home run. A single doesn't do it. A double doesn't do it. Granted, they could because you could advance and do whatever. But in that moment, you need that one particular thing to happen. And that's what James Conrad did. So I do think that it was one of the most clutch shots in, 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 the sport, in sporting history because it needed to happen. Like, that would be like at the Masters, you're on hole 18 from 250 yards out, and you need to put it, not just put it on the green, mm. but it needs to go in. I don't like, know, if, to, I don't know like, if you can equate it to a 250-yard golf shot. Like, the way I imagine it is sort of like Tiger's chip at the Masters. Well, it would, it would have to be like uh, at least like a 100-yard pitch shot. Something like, like, something like that. Like, if you take a, a, right. a moment that y- you can perceive as having already happened, but take that instance and then move it to hole 18 to then tie it. Like right. That was hole exactly. 16, right? So it's like the same sort of level of execution, maybe even grander. Um, I'm not going to go into that argument because I feel like I would be opening a can. However, it's just like that execution plus the added context of there is no other chance. This is the last chance. Well, and that's that for me, that's what sells it is Mm -hmm. that there was one, one shot that had to be made. One opportunity. There was was one opportunity in for him to win to, to tie this thing not to win it there was one opportunity for him to tie it and on top of that this opportunity doesn't present itself if james conrad throws a, a good drive if james conrad throws a good drive paul doesn't need like, he doesn't just lay up paul gets it on the green and goes for and, and gets his it gets his birdie and, and, and gets it done like he doesn't lay up like he did like giving James Conrad that window. If James Conrad throws a good drive, it's it's a completely different story. So the fact that everything lined up, that the stars lined up the way that they did, and then James Conrad had one opportunity, one thing that he needed to happen. And he captured and he, it. And he executes it. Like, I mean, it's it's come on so dude fun. go with the so music fun. go with the music he captured it he didn't execute it <laughs> mom spaghetti there you go Hell yeah all right <laughs> <laughs> nice but like i mean i i think it might be i think yeah okay i agree i agree there's definitely an argument to be made now i don't know that i can definitively say that it's one of the top shots or that it is the most clutch shot of all time but it's one any sport but it's certainly in the conversation. Now, okay, it, I, I agree with you. And I would push that it was the most clutch in my knowledge. So, like, I can only yeah. speak on what yes. I'm aware of. For sure, right. So, right. in my mind currently, and until I'm proven otherwise or demonstrated evidence of another, like, competing moment in sports, I think it is the most clutch moment in sports. I Just, heard it equated to, so anybody who's a football fan in whatever that was 2009 i think it was 2008 whenever the giants won the super bowl the helmet the catch Patriots. i think in the, the helmet t- catch the Dave, yes the david tyree See, helmet I, catch i don't like i think you could so the reason i don't think it's quite the same is 
there's some issue in my mind when I come to comparing team sports versus individual sports. Like there's okay. two people involved in that play. And so like the execution, like it's a product of cooperation, whereas in an individual sport, it's all on one person to completely execute. So it's, but, so the, but in the, the amazing outcome, it was fantastic to watch, but at the same time, like, what do you think is more likely to be replicated if well, given so that, the same scenario play, over and over? You need, you need to look at that play more closely. Okay. So to start, to answer your question, James Conrad throws in from 250 feet on a super OB green. I mean, that shot's probably like one in a hundred, one in a thousand. Like you're not making that shot like often at all, you know, even for the best putter throw in the world. But the thing with the football play, with that particular play, yes, it's a team sport. Yes, these things have to happen. But the way that play happened was Eli Manning gets, gets rushed. His pocket collapses. He gets rushed. He gets flushed out of his pocket to he's, he's, he's scrambling. He gets wrapped up. He scrambles out of the tackle. He, he he gets out of the tackle, and he makes this big, ridiculous throw downfield. And David Tyree goes up, and I th I think he was he was in a tight single coverage. I don't think there were two guys on him, but oh, he was in tight single. tight single coverage. And he goes up and catches this ball and pins it to his helmet, like on his way down. It was a miraculous catch, but more so than that, it was a miraculous play by Eli Manning. To escape the pocket, to get away from the tackle that was on him. It's not like he didn't stiff arm somebody coming to get him. This guy had him wrapped up, and he, he got away from him to make this miraculous throw and the miraculous catch. It was the one outcome that needed to happen. They needed that first down. They needed okay. to advance down the field. It was short time. They needed to have that happen. I think it's comparable. I think it's, it's something that is just as clutch. And you're right. It's not one person doing it. But in some ways, I think that could make it more impressive because you have two people that did two incredible things to make that happen. Okay. I can see that for sure. I, I don't, I really don't think it's fair to say, like, I don't think you can put it in, you can't say this is better than this. But what right. you can do is you can group it into a category where it's like, you, if there was a Hall of Fame of fantastic sporting moments, James Conrad's shot is 100% in that Hall of Fame, not even close. Now, do you think most sports enthusiasts would agree with that? If they knew the context intimately, I think they would. So the point of the argument I had in my coworker, which sort of alluded to the context of why I thought this shot should have been up there with one of the greats. The argument was the context has to be associated with viewership and the audience. Because disc golf is a sort of a marginal, like niche sport, it cannot be as clutch as like the NFL or one of the mainstream sports just because like the audience of 100,000 versus millions creates a different stage. And therefore, like if you make the same play in front of 100,000, it is less clutch than making the same play in front of a million just because you know you're on that larger stage. See, but I disagree with that completely. I do too. If you have, like, okay, let's say this is last year during COVID, right? There's no spectators, okay? So there's nobody in, there's nobody there. And let's say the viewership was down. Let's say that, a, like, a cell issue happened, right? A cell service issue happened where they couldn't broadcast it. So you mean to tell me because nobody saw it, it's not a clutch moment? The outcome is still the same. 
like whether anybody saw it or not, James Conrad to win the world championships, whether you have a million eyes on that or you have no eyes on it is to win the world championships, the most one of the most prestigious titles in in the sport of disc golf. Like whether you have a million people watching or not has no no bearing. If there were nobody, there was no one watching the Super Bowl and an amazing play happens, an amazing scenario happens, like that Eli Manning play, the, the Giants win the Super Bowl over the undefeated Patriots, which that storyline is what made that so important. That whole thing, if there's nobody watching that, it's still important that it happened. It's still important. Like, I don't, I don't understand that argument. It may not be as prolific to the mainstream, but it is still a prolific event that happened. You know, whether there's a million eyeballs on it or not, the moment still happened. The outcome still happened. He still earned himself a world title because of that clutch shot. Mm -hmm. That's the definition of clutch. He needed to do that, and he did it. So, like, I don't understand the argument. To you say know, it, it was a little bit upsetting, but I kind of feel like ultimately is marginalization of the sport and sort of sure. like gatekeeping. Right. among people who are quote-unquote sports enthusiasts to mm -hmm. sort of focus on, you know, what ESPN shows versus sort of like all competition. Right. And I mm -hmm. think like it was it was unfair. I think that's an unfair conclusion that this person came to, which is why I disagreed I, with it. Well, it, well, and that's fair too. But like I said at the beginning, like when I think of the best shot in any sporting event, right, at first blush, this doesn't make it for me. Because I'm thinking to myself, baseball's been around forever. Football has been around forever. Hockey, lacrosse, even cornhole and bowling and all of these things that are more mainstream than disc golf is right now. Billiards, darts. My point is that I think of these other sports that are out there. And, you know, look at the Olympics. Like, think of how many... Okay, curling is, is in the Olympics. Everybody loves watching curling in the Olympics. The bobsled. Everybody loves watching the track and field events. Like... These things are more mainstream than disc golf, okay? But I'm thinking, okay, all of these other sports must have moments that supersede this. But if you look at it closely and you look at the arguments that, that you and I outlined and you look at the fact that, hey, he did need – this was this is a very hard one in a thousand, one, you know, one in 100 chance of making this shot, and he had to do it in order to make the outcome happen. He had to hit this one shot, you know – is a very clutch shot. And I do think that given the circumstances, and like I said, if you know the situation intimately, I do think that it can certainly live in that pantheon of most clutch shots of all time for any sport. You know, but I do, I can see how someone who isn't in tune with everything in the disc golf world to, to feel that it might not be. And that it, you know, they would need to look at it deeply and they would need to be educated on the circumstances you know and that's gonna come with time but i do think that once that happens once disc golf does become mainstream i think people will look back and be like whoa this happened and be like wow that's one of the most clutch things i've ever seen you know people are going to be able to go back and watch the footage and, and see that and and understand it and it's like the philo albatross from the beaver state fling years ago like ESPN has played that a billion times. It's always on their social media feeds. Always. It's always there, and it's always getting airtime. James Conrad's shot's going to be the same exact way. 
Yeah, I really hope it is. I was very pleased with the World Championships. You know, there were some things that I think that could be looked at constructively and built upon. But overall, I think they did a fantastic job. I think that... I think it was one of the best tournaments I've ever watched. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that. Um, I can't think of anything that was... I can't think of anything that was more fun due to the storylines. Yep. You know, uh, well, uh, no, that's not true. But again, I didn't watch this live. But like the Ricky Paul battles in the world championships, like the 2012 world championships in Charlotte where, where Paul wins a playoff over Michael Johansson. You know, I didn't see that live, but I would have loved to because I think that that would have been a similar deal. You know, when Paul beat Ricky in Portland for the world championships, I think that would have been great to watch live, but I didn't see that one live either. You know, but I think that those are this this tournament lives in that same pantheon with some of those those tournaments and those moments. Agreed. It would be that would be cool is to see somebody compile a like do like a highlights, but do I don't know how you would do it. I think you would have to do it in like documentary form, I think is the only way you could do it. But to do like a condensed TLDR of the situation and then show like the playoff or the, the, the moment that caused and just use a ton of slow motion. Yes. And like, and talk through it and like have the players talk about those moments. Like, I think that would be a really cool documentary series. Like, I don't know, take the top 10 disc golf tournament moments or like disc golf prolific shots or prolific moments mm -hmm. in disc golf. And give the TLDR, have maybe a couple interviews on what happened leading up to it, why it was the way it was, then show the shot, show the moment, and then talk about why, you know, how that played out afterwards and maybe show the finish. Like maybe not show the whole tournament, but just condense everything into like a 20, 30 minute package where, you know, that would be, I think that would be awesome for one of the media companies to do is to kind of look back and say, this was the situation this was the shot this was the outcome and have interviews with the players involved you know start with you know whatever go back as far as you want to go back you know because there's been some pretty big moments in you know world championships and like the usdgc for instance whatever year that was where ken climo and barry schultz went to like 12 playoff holes like they played 12 holes or something like that in the playoff at the usdgc and that's on youtube i would love to see a documentary about ken climo Barry Schultz and with interviews with both of them, you know, from, from that time, I would like, or not from that time, like with them now, but talking about that tournament, I would love to see that. So, um, while I was watching this year's worlds, I also tuned back into 2000, the, the worlds from 2000. Oh my God. Those boys were goofy back then. Oh yeah. <laughs> Is that the one where Maddie Orem was wearing like the Yankees Jersey? No, this was uh, when the sport looked a lot like what you would imagine stereotypical ball golf to be, like old middle-aged white guys in polos and shorts, just like knee-high socks, just throwing this. Was it the 2000 Worlds or was it the 1999? I think it was 2000. Because I've seen the 1999 Worlds with Rochester, New York. I've played that course a million times. I love that course. Chai Lai is it's a fantastic course. 
it's a little outdated now. It, you couldn't run like a championship caliber event there now. That's but, too bad. Uh, but it was, yeah, in 1999, that was the world's course. That video's online too. I don't remember whose channel it's on, but it is on YouTube. If you search like the 1999 Disc Golf World Championships, it's there. But yeah, no, 100%, I agree with you. Like, they're all wearing like the oversized cotton polos with, mm-hmm. you know, jean shorts and yep. tube, tube socks back in those days. It's hilarious. It's like if ball golf just evolved into a hipster sport, is what well, we essentially are. what it was. I mean, it was the sport of golf done by, you know, hippies at that time, hippies and hipsters. And it has become a sport that is not all about, you know, that side of things. It's more about the sporting aspect of it. And I'm I'm glad that like sort of the fashion sense has improved. Well, that's been a big push and that's been a big area of debate. There's a lot of pushback on that. People don't like people within disc golf don't want to see like a dress code and things like that happen. I think that needs to happen. Not necessarily like, okay, it's not Greg Wolf. You want to go to your local course. You need to be wearing a polo shirt and golf shorts. But when you're going to play in the highest level of of competition, if you're going to play in a pro tour event, yeah, I think there needs to be a, a standard. Like you need to have a clean cut, polo or a clean cut collared shirt with night with you need to look nice you know i don't i'm not saying country club nice like i'm not talking like because even golf is starting to to move away from that a little bit like you know you see like rory mcelroy and tiger woods like their nike shirts they have those like collarless nike shirts now they're like they're i don't remember what they're called but they they look like a polo without a collar essentially um and they're super comfortable i have one they're super comfortable but you're starting to see a shift from the super, 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 you know, dressy, snuffy country club attire in golf. But I, I don't think it needs to go that far, but it certainly needs to be like a jersey or a, 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 a nice polo. And I know the Pro Tour does a pretty good job with that, but I think I would like to see it even more. Like I'd like to see no gym shorts. I'd like to see, you know, nice golf attire you know, while they're out there. Now, part of this is that there is no golf attire specific. That's not true. They're starting to become disc golf attire. There's no big brands like Under Armour is not making disc golf specific attire. Nike is not making disc golf specific attire right now. Once that happens, because like, for instance, if you go to do a, a disc golf throwing motion, like you're going to throw a drive and you're wearing a dry fit, golf polo with dry fit golf shorts it's not meant to stay in place for that motion it's meant to stay in place for a golf swing which even with the golf swing a lot of times it'll come you know untucked and whatnot but like i would like to see some companies designing these things that are more for disc golf and i think you are starting to see that with the the vii apparel with some of these other companies coming in um wander disc golf with some of these other bigger companies that are doing these sublimated jerseys and, and polos, I think you will see that down the road. I think you will see more disc golf specific attire. And as that happens, I think you'll see an increase in the dress code um, as you go through. You know, I do think even something like an esports jersey, I don't think would be a bad idea. You know what I mean? Like, I just keep it professional looking. You know, it doesn't, there's nothing saying that professional has to be a suit and a tie, but keep it looking sharp, you know, presentable. 
Do you think that's a current issue? Mm-hmm. I really? do. Yes. I don't. I don't see that. You don't see it on like the main cards, but it is an issue that you see here. You hear players bringing up from time to time because like that needs to be the same for the spectators too. Like if you're going to be a spectator at one of these things, you need to be held to the same standard. Like, so I saying... can't be like that guy on hole 18 <laughs> running around with the American yes. flagged yes. shorts with no shoe yes. on. Yes. Because it takes away from the moment. What are you talking about? That was part of the moment. When See, I think I... of that shot, I think of shirtless American sure, flag pants. Sure. You do. You do. But are you going to take that video of shirtless American flag guy and show that to Nike and say, James Conrad needs to be sponsored by Nike because of this? No, I'm going to, t- I'm going to take that to the, the president's office and be like, the United States has to <laughs> sponsor James Conrad. No, I, okay, all right. I, I, can, I can concede that point that, like, you know, I'm not saying that everyone needs treat to be... it somewhat like a golf or like a somewhat or tennis, somewhat. like yeah. somewhat. I'm not somewhat. saying I'm not saying that it needs to be a country club stuffy environment, but right. it needs to be like somewhat. No shirt, no like, shoes, no spectating. Yes, kind of. Okay. Yes, I. All right. I do think that that would be that would be good. What if that guy in the excitement of that moment? just flung his clothes off in excitement, like just jumped up in joy and somehow hit both his shoes and his socks <laughs> and shirt somehow didn't uh, get I captured on I, camera, I, sprung I I free can't. from his body, and he could only run around in circles. I can't fault the guy for that then. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. <laughs> no, I, cool. I just think that it should be, like you said, no shirt, no shoes, no spectating kind of thing. And with, the, the players, I think it needs to be like a professional jersey or a professional polo shirt with professional shorts, no ill-fitting clothing. Like, I think it needs – there needs to be a standard. This is how I would do it. I would address it to like a players' union or association and have there, them decide because they're the product, one, right? But yes, I agree. There should you. be. There should be. There should be. That's a separate and issue, but I agree with you. that should be a decision based on the competitors because they should – be able to make the decision as themselves because they are the product that they are selling. It's a lot easier. You're right. And it's a lot easier to market yourself. If when you look at these videos, it's like the quality is there now. Like they look professional, like the, the prof- it's professional video quality. Mm-hmm. So if the people on the professional video quality look professional, you can now market that. And that's what I would like to see is just I'd like to see that anytime you look at a player, like you shouldn't have to be worried about player X, Y, or Z coming up on coverage because they look like a fool. Like they need to look presentable. They need to look – there needs to be some form of a dress code. you know. And again, it doesn't need to be as stuffy as like a country club you know, button up all the time. But like even a sublimated T-shirt jersey type deal is great. You know, just it, everything needs to be professional looking and held to a standard. But you're right. I do think a players union would be a big part of that. And I think there is talk of that, but I just don't know that it's, it it hasn't happened yet. You know, there's the same talk in like in the UFC, for instance, that they're trying to fight for a fighters union, like a, or a, a committee of, of these fighters to stand up for one another, because there's a lot of people being taken advantage of. And I think you can say the same thing for disc golf. If you don't have that type of organization, I do think that there's going to be 
players being taken advantage of and circumstances being leveraged and taken advantage of that should be dictated by the players. Yeah. When we see a players union formed, then you'll see the money coming in. I don't think you're wrong. I, I think that's a definite possibility. Cool. What else are we going to be talking about today? Well, I think we should probably let everybody know a little bit about, you know, one of the things that's been kind of relevant for us and why our social media has been a little bit MIA and why our podcasts have been a little bit MIA. Um, But we have all, you know, granted things have been busy for everybody, but within the last, you know, week or so, um, Pat came down with, I don't, do you remember the name of the actual... No, some parasitic tick-borne illness. It was a tick-borne illness from disc golf. He was playing disc golf and was bit by um, bit by a tick. And it was Babesia microti is what he called it. I don't know if that's the, the true name, but that's what he told us anyway. Um, as a tick-borne illness that presents very much like the flu. And he's been very ill for about a week. Um, he's being treated by a doctor. Um, but he's been out of commission for a bit. So that's why our social media hasn't really been up to snuff over the last you know week or so. Um, and that's why Pat's not here tonight. Um, but let's use this as a moment, you know, a teachable moment to kind of illustrate the need for awareness of ticks and other such diseases or, or other such parasites that are out there. Um, when you're playing disc golf or being, when you're outside for for that matter, like, I mean, you're not going to go walking through the swamp in Florida, unaware of the fact that you might have an alligator come up and snap your leg off. Like that's a very real possibility. If you're walking through a swamp in Florida, if you are playing in the Northeast or e- I mean on the East coast specifically of the United States and you're playing disc golf, you need to be very aware that there are insects out there that can can bite you and infect you with diseases that are that are terrible. There's mosquitoes. You know, obviously, I think things like malaria don't quite reach into the United States, but that's a thing elsewhere in the world. Um, you know, Zika has been a thing that can be transmitted. West Nile virus, things that can be transmitted by mosquitoes. And with the ticks, you know, you're seeing more and more. I read a terrifying report the other day about um, deer ticks not only carrying this this illness that Pat has, the Babesia or whatever, but also um, Lyme disease, obviously. Mm-hmm. And then there's the... Alpha gal is the illness that's carried by the Lone Star tick, but I saw a report that now deer ticks are starting to be seen with this. And if you don't know what alpha gal is, alpha gal is a is a an illness where you're you're bit by the tick. It this this infection essentially causes it so you now have a permanent red meat allergy. Your body can no longer process the proteins in red meat. I believe is how it works. I'm not a doctor. Please don't quote me on that. But from my understanding is that your body can no longer process red meats and you go into a sort of anaphylaxis, you know, when, when you ingest red meat. Um, and that's, these things are all tick-borne and ticks are very, very, very small. And if you are not taking care of yourself when you're out on the course and looking and checking, and I mean every crevice, like you need to be, when you get home, you need to be looking, you know, and all the hard to reach places, you need to be looking in all the, the dark, damp, sweaty places. Gotta be looking. And if you're not, you need to be spraying with with bug spray or taking, you know, some precautions there. And if you're not, you're running the risk of getting, you know, a tick on you and that bites you and that creates these issues, you know, that are very serious. So that's a very long way of saying, please 
use care when you're out there. Make sure that you're you're checking yourself. You and your playgroup are aware of this. You know, spray yourself down with bug spray. Spray your bag down with bug spray. You know, make sure that you're not leaving an opportunity, especially if you live on the eastern part of the United States. Um, you're not leaving an opportunity for these bugs to potentially, you know, really put you at a disadvantage for quite a bit of time. Because all of these things, some of them are permanent. They're all nasty. You don't want them. Take care of yourself. Make sure you're you're watching out for ticks and you're really taking some time to, you know, check yourself over. Exactly. Hopefully soon enough we'll be back in the grind again. Yes, please. Uh, I've heard, John, so I've heard requests from a listener uh, for like a Q&A type session. Do you think think people would be interested in that? I would be interested in it. You, listener, would you be interested in a Q&A segment where you can ask us questions live and we may or may not have the capacity to answer you? Yes? Well, please email us or send us any sort of affirmation via social media to our accounts. I forget all of our accounts, <laughs> but X-Step John, XDEP Disc Golf. Yeah, just search that. You'll find us. Send us a message if you want to be part of this. And if you have any questions and you want to just rip into us for whatever reason, it was like, hey, why are you uh, quitting Fantasy disc, disc Golf, which is sad. I think is a casualty of all of this, but maybe next year, I think. I don't know. What do you think, John? I think that we'll rework it and we'll have a way to make it more manageable next year. Okay. All right. So, wait. Does that mean that Pat has won this year? No, it's a, an asterisk. <laughs> okay. All right. Cool. <laughs> Anyways, um, I know last time, John, we were talking about sort of the industry side of things. I would love to continue talking about that because... I've been in some contact with some people, and maybe I'll be uh, getting an injection mold. Very cool. Well, not an injection mold, an injection mold machine. Right. So I would love to hear that. I would love to yeah. hear about that process. And yeah, just because of that that YouTube, uh, another shout out to Trash Panda uh, Disc Golf on YouTube. Great guy. His name's Jesse. I think he's from the Denver area out in Colorado. He's doing great yeah, work. He's from Colorado for sure. Maybe. I don't remember if it's Denver. I think it. I think you're right. I think it is Denver. Colorado. Let's just say Colorado. Colorado um, for sure. Yeah. Uh, he's doing. He's got a really cool YouTube channel where he, uh, to reiterate from last time, where he has gone through the process of designing and creating these machines where he's in creating his own recycled disc golf discs from like plastic bottles, from plastic grocery bags. All this stuff and it's super good. I think you know it's a victory for both the environment and disc golf in general. Check him out. I've been checking him out. I've been like subscribed and I've been watching all his videos. I'm super impressed and I'm really looking to sort of follow in his footsteps. And maybe we can continue this conversation that we had on air last time about you know maybe our own brand. I don't know. I think that's a great cliffhanger to leave yeah. the episode on. 